What is it about the last words that somebody speaks before they pass that are so compelling to us? From time immemorial, if you look at almost any culture, the words of many people, whether they're somewhat obscure in the country's history or if they were from a regal background, they were kings, they were statesmen, they were athletes. But their words, philosophers, their words often get recorded. They come down to us in history. And I think part of the reason is because when somebody knows that their passing from this life is imminent, they get more reflective, they get more candid, they're a little more honest about maybe what they think their life is about. They are concerned about what is next in some cases, other cases not so much. What is it about words that somebody speaks before they pass that are interesting to us, that speak to us today? We lean into them, we listen closely. Sometimes we discover that what they say, what they reveal, is something that they didn't really express in their life. Edward Gibbon, the writer of The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, the great scholar, who was not a particular friend of Christianity, said this. His words recorded are, This day may be my last. I will agree that the immortality of the soul is at times a very comfortable doctrine. All this is now lost, finally, irrevocably lost. All is dark and doubtful. Sometimes the words reflect just sort of who the person was in life. Richard Feynman, who was an eminent physicist, author, musician, Caltech professor, um, when he passed in the 80s, his last words recorded because he was such an observer was this, this dying is boring. He didn't know what was next, but it, with that physicist mind, he just was once again assessing what he was experiencing. Perhaps the quote that struck me most was the uh, great jazz drummer Buddy Rich, who died after complications from surgery. But as he was being prepped by the nurse for surgery, she asked him, is there anything that you can't take? And Rich replied, yeah, country music. <laughs> what we say reveals what's important to us, or sometimes it reveals just something that, in Rich's case, probably didn't realize that his time was short. But I looking at last words because when we come to 2 Timothy 4, which is the last chapter in the epistles that we've been looking at, these are Paul's last written words to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And they have the same kind of pregnancy that we associate with last words. And I think if we would hear them as I imagine Timothy heard them, we would come away encouraged as I'm sure he came away encouraged. We'd come away challenged in certain ways. And so that's our time together. As I said, this concludes the Timothy piece. We've been looking at Timothy specifically over the last four weeks because Timothy, as Paul's beloved son in the faith, is one that would inherit, if you will, that legacy, is one who would be commissioned as Paul was. And so Paul starts with, don't be timid. Be, be pressed into this Holy Spirit let him fill you with, uh, so that you're no longer timid, but that you have um, a sense of self-discipline, a sense of um, no longer fearful, doubtful, but of power, love, and self-discipline. The second week we saw that Timothy wasn't just to, to 
live out of this place for his own benefit, he's actually supposed to pass that on. He's supposed to pass that on to other people that would be considered reliable because that's how the gospel spreads. So Timothy, is, these are never possessions that God gives us for our own, our sole benefit, but we are trustees to pass them on. Last week we looked at the great legacy that God gives us in his own word. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is our, one of our amazing tools and inheritances without which we cannot be on the mission that God calls us to. We cannot be formed to be like Christ. We cannot pass on something that truly those that we care about most need to hear. And so this week we come to the last words, the last legacy that Paul has. And it's interesting because Paul says, he starts with, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. He, he's so aware that his time is short. Little background, Paul is in jail in Rome. This is the second imprisonment. The first one, if you can think that imprisonment is ever okay, it was more house arrest. It wasn't quite as bad as this one where he really is incarcerated, really is in prison. And he realizes his time is short. And he, he likens his life now to a sacrifice, being poured out, a drink offering. But he can say, I've fought the good fight and I've finished the race and I have kept the faith. He's already still encouraging, encouraging Timothy. I want to look at the three things that I think emerge from this that, that I trust encourage us. Because when Paul, if he's, he's still in prison, he knows his time is short. He knows that his life is coming to an end. He knows that the Romans are going to not let him escape this time. There can be a heaviness in such times, but there can be a sense of, I don't know if he felt pressure or a sense of being overwhelmed. I don't think he did. But I think the reason he did not feel himself unduly alarmed or greatly overwhelmed was because he knew who he belonged to. The first thing that this passage reveals to us, if, if we want to be steadfast in the calling that God gives us, if we want to make sure that the pressures of this world and the places where we can feel overwhelmed, that just come with the territory of belonging to Jesus Christ, of being a, a, min a minority in a majority world, we should see how Paul lived his life. And the first thing that helps us is just to see how he was so focused on the life that God had called him to. He lived for Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first point is he lived for Jesus and for everything that he had in Christ. He was never the same after the road to Damascus. The bright light appearing, he falls from the donkey, I think, that he was riding. He hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth. And his life wasn't the same. God started, Jesus starts with that. And then Paul is blinded, but, but Jesus brings in Ananias to, to speak to him and to say, give him the Lord's next words, which are, you are to be my witness in Jerusalem. And then you will go to the Gentiles. God has already clearly has his hand on Paul's life when Paul was completely in another direction. And so Paul lives for Jesus the rest of his life. And he can say, because he did, I fought the fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. I fought the fight, the good fight of faith, the, fa the fight that says, this is the legacy that God's entrusted with me, the gospel, the good news, that this is how you can be with God who created you to be with him all the days of 
not only this life, but in glory with him. He fought that fight because not everybody wanted to hear it. There were stakeholders, the Judaizers, for example, who didn't want to hear that, but he had to persevere and persist. He finished the race, the race meaning his life course. He didn't get to pick his life. He, he, just, he was so dependent on Jesus, leading him at each and every point. Do I go into Asia? No, it's blocked. We're just told that in Acts that this way is blocked. But a man from Macedonia appears to him in a vision and says, come and give us the gospel. That's a pretty clear lead. But he's so susceptible, so open to, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord puts his hand on Paul's life. The Lord is leading Paul at each and every junction. Paul is following. The Lord is the one who marks out the race course, but Paul follows the Lord, and then he keeps the faith, no matter how discouraging. It had to be discouraging. I don't know what human can go from one town to the next, preach the gospel, and then get mugged and beat up, and then pick himself up and go to the next town where it gets repeated. There's a pattern. We go down by the river to pray, we meet some people, we share the gospel, more people come, then enemies come, and on it goes. But he kept the faith. Clement of Rome, who wrote 30 years after Paul was uh, martyred, writes this of his life. He says, he was the greatest example of endurance for the faith. So the application, I think, for us, even though our context is different 2,000 years later, and we don't have the same gifts that Paul had. He's obviously clearly gifted. We know that from just his biography. Our gifts are going to be different. We may not be ones that can argue like he did or reason like he did or have the great memory that he did. The ones that had necessary level of perseverance to get up, pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and keep going. Our context is different. We may not have the same gifts, particularly when times of stress come, particularly when things just seem to ratchet up as they often did in Paul's ministry. But we have the same Lord that Paul had. We have the same one who is by his side, who calms him, who guides him, who leads him. Paul was always wanting to know what the Lord wanted and always trusting in him. Much of the knowledge, excuse me, much of the calm and I think the steadfastness that Paul exhibited came from the knowledge of who he belonged to and what his mission was. Whatever the storm he was in, he was able to be calm like he'd heard Jesus was in the midst of his storm. He knew that the Lord had said, you won't just be my witness here, but you will go to Rome. You're going to speak to the Gentiles. And so whatever was kind of in his way, he knew that wasn't the last chapter. He knew that wasn't the final word. When Jesus says, get in the boat and let's go to the other side, as uh, one of the great preachers in my formation, Howard Hendricks, said, he said, he didn't mean let's get in the boat and go to the middle of the lake and drown. When Jesus says we're going to go from here to there, then we will go from here to there as we stay with him. Don't let the wind, the waves, the persecution, the stuff in the social media, in the internet, the naysayers, as you've heard me say in the past, um, I, I think that the church's stock is down in our culture for some reason. But it's, well, we know some of the reasons, but it's not down as far as God's concerned. There's plenty of people that still need to hear. There's plenty of lives that still need to be changed. There's plenty of families that can be uh, brought up in the way of the Lord. There's plenty of of futures 
that are going to be like Paul's, completely in this direction until God gets a hold of them, and now they're in that direction. And we get to play a part if we are faithful as Paul was. So part of not being overwhelmed, part of not getting abundantly stressed out by all the things that are in our life that are part of our calling is to know that God has called us to these things. I had an early age, I knew that there was something about me and ministry that God wanted to do. I understood it more in a Catholic context at the time. I spent plenty of years in tech, but each and every year of that, I could see that God was using me and shaping me in some way, shape, or form. Some of you have that calling, that vocation. You know it's going to be medical or healthcare, but you don't know all the ways that that's going to happen. Some of you are in business. Some of you are in academia. If you're in academia, you know already that people are going to start to come and disagree and say things and assault your reputation. And that's just for openers. It can get worse. But if Jesus has called us to that, we don't need to fear. We can be like Paul who just said, Lord, I'm living for you. Guide me and direct me. Second thing I think that's clear, if I want to be somebody who who walks steadfastly with the Lord and not get sidetracked, not get overwhelmed, you know what else Paul is doing? He's not letting his enemies get in his head. Look at what he says. He talks about a few things. I mean, he's got to be bothered and bummed in certain places. Demas, his, his ministry partner, deserted him, said he abandoned him. Have you ever been abandoned by a friend? Suddenly something like, did I miss a memo, an email, a text? Thought we were together on this and we don't seem to be together anymore. This is Paul. Demas abandons the mission field. He goes back because, Paul says, because he loved this world. Paul refers to Alexander, an enemy in Ephesus and the riots that went there. But here's, what, here's the great thing that Paul does that we really need to get hold of. He says he leaves the question of Alexander to the Lord. He did me much harm. You too, Timothy, should be on your guard. But he says this, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. See, whatever the enemy uses to get people to come at us or they just sort of come at us, we can turn them over to God. There is a justice issue. He's not saying it didn't hurt. He's not saying it wasn't a problem. not saying it didn't set back the mission. I'm sure all those things were true at some level. But what he says is, I don't need to worry about that. I, I can't do the justice that that situation requires anyway. If I get in front of what God's going to do, I'm just going to mess it up. So I'm going to entrust that person to the Lord. The Lord will repay him however the Lord wants. Think of the freedom that comes with that kind of letting go. Or even with those in his first defense, he says, I'm in my first defense. This is a pre-trial hearing in Rome. And he said, nobody came to support me. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. His friends. But he says this, may it not be held against them. He was so aware of the debt that he owed to the Lord, so aware that here was a guy who persecuted the church, had death warrants for members of the church. God freed him up. He could let that go. So if we're going to be people that stay on the mission that God has us, we can't let the, the temptation to resent, condemn, get revenge, pay back, grow in any way. It's like a weed. It just needs to be pulled. Pull it. Be like Paul. I'm going to, Lord, you, you deal with them. Or I'm not going to hold it against you. I think that's marvelous. Too often, if, if we don't do that, then we can become embittered. 
If we don't do that, how do they hear that gospel? How do they see the gospel in us? Sometimes the gospel that they need to hear is the gospel of forgiveness and non-judgment. We can only do that in the power of Christ. The third and final thing I'm seeing Paul demonstrate here so that he stays on the mission that God has given him. So he's not overwhelmed. He's not bummed out even though he is in prison, even though he knows his time is short, even though there's times he feels lonely and he knows he's abandoned. What else does he do? Here's the key um, to his thing. He says, but the Lord stood by my side. How does Paul go through each of these situations? The Lord stands by his side. We don't know what that actually meant. Did, did the Lord physically stand by his side? Was it some kind of Christophany that he appeared? Was it just a sense that he was there? We don't know. We don't, but we know it was pretty tangible because he said that. We know it wasn't the first time that the Lord stood by his side because in the middle of, of the courtroom in the Sanhedrin, the Lord stands by his side as well. This says probably, well, this says a lot about our Lord who will not let us go through things without his presence. Not just his presence, but his presence, what? Paul says, to encourage us. Whatever we go through, whatever challenges we're going to face tomorrow, wherever we are. And when it's really intense, look for the Lord to stand by your side because he will do that. Because that's who he is. Doing it more than once. Sometimes the Lord sent, in Paul's case, he sends an angel. Remember, in the, he's, the storm is breaking out and it looks like they're not going to make it. Paul says, the Lord sent an angel to strengthen me. God will strengthen us as, with as much as we strength as we need. That's, that is very encouraging to me. Uh, if you're reading the morning prayer this morning, the reading from Acts was, was a quote from Psalm 16. It says this, David said about him, meaning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And you have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. I think what Paul is writing to Timothy is a paraphrase of what David wrote in Psalm 16. And it is for us as well. I have uh, tried to cultivate this in my life more and more. I'm sort of embarrassed to talk about how late in my life I think this has been. But there was a time where eventually I just got tired of being... uh, worked up about that situation, worried about that thing over there, wondering if this thing that I wanted would happen. And finally, the Holy Spirit in his infinite patience said to me, why don't you just ask if you actually need to worry about this? That's a really good idea. So I started to do that. Whatever was in my head, like, Lord, do I have to worry about this? And oftentimes the answer would be no. And then when some circumstance would happen that would kind of bring it up again and I'd be tempted to worry about it, the Lord would remind me. We talked about that. Still don't need to worry about it. Still don't need, it's not a concern of yours. I've got whatever, you know, whatever the situation is. I've got that. This is my experience of what Paul is talking about, of the Lord standing by my side. To do what? To strengthen me. To say that there's places I don't need to go in my head and my mind and my heart places of anxieties, fear, doubt, 
You can amen anytime you want, or maybe it's just me that's in those places, but this is just, I think, the Christian condition oftentimes in the place that we live in, with the pressures that come from our work, with the concerns we have for our family, with the economic uncertainty that's there, with um, the cultural things that happen. Somebody was saying recently, a pastor friend of mine calling it, I don't know if he called it a cultural winter, but something like that. There's just a lot that's gone on for us and continues to go on. Lord, do I need to worry about that? Lord, is your presence there for me? If we would look for it, we would find it because Jesus is the one who initiates that because he loves us, because he has a plan for us, and to see us through that. He stands by us, and he stands, and he encourages us. So listen through his voice, not only through the word of God, not only through the Holy Spirit, as I was talking about. Oftentimes, it'll come through a friend who just says something, and you're thinking, that is from the Lord. These are words that are meant to encourage Timothy, one who was unsure about perhaps his ability to lead the life that God was calling him to lead, to be the, the leader in the church that Paul continued to exhort him. But these words that Paul spoke to him and the ministry that Paul modeled for him and the relationship he had for him changed Timothy's life. Church tradition tells us that Timothy became the bishop in Ephesus where he served for another 25 years. Ephesus didn't get any easier. Uh, Clement writes about its history more jealousies coming up, more issues within the church, etc., etc. Not a lot has changed. But Timothy is able to be God's person in the middle of all that because of what Paul had shared and poured into him. And these last words that Paul says, writes to Timothy, I'm sure were essential in part of that mission. The last words that we say can change lives. They change churches. And may these words that Paul wrote to Timothy change our own lives as well. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.